Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On this episode, I have the honor of interviewing my PhD supervisor, Michael Bird. Mike Bird teaches at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, where he's also the academic dean. We talk about a lot of his books and some of the things he's working on, including his introduction to the New Testament with N.T. Wright. We also talk about PhD studies and what does it take to write a good dissertation and what's it like to be the supervisor of a PhD dissertation, which is kind of funny to ask your supervisor when he tries not to insult you while also <laughs> giving advice. And I've seen all the advice and heard it all already, so it's not anything new to me per se. But hopefully it will help those of you who are working on or thinking about a PhD. So I hope this conversation is informative and helpful. This episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can go to bhacademic.com to find out more about the latest books that they are offering. You can also check out the Christian Standard Bible, our other sponsor, at csbible.com. Now here's my conversation with Michael Bird. But first... No big deal. I am joined today by my Dr. Vata the great Dr. Michael Bird. Mike, thanks for jumping on with me today. Uh, it's good to be here with my Dr. Zun. Uh, Brandon, good to be here. Well, Mike, we have a, a lot of things that I want to talk about today. I don't know if we'll get to all of them, but I thought maybe we could start just by talking about uh, your faith journey, how you became a Christian, um, your military background, sort of all the all the interesting things about you as the most interesting Australian in the world. Okay. Uh, well, I thought maybe you, Jackman, would be slightly more interesting. I don't know. Um, I'm pretty debatable. sure if you ask your wife, you'd rather have over for dinner Mike Bird or you, Jack, and I'm pretty sure you, Jack, is going to win. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> uh, faith journey, becoming a Christian, and then uh, becoming a scholar. Yeah, well, I didn't grow up in a, a Christian home. I grew up in a fairly um, non-religious home. It, it wasn't, I guess, anti-religious, but just non-religious religion, which is the non-entity uh, for us. Um, but it was a fairly dysfunctional home in many respects too. And I was very keen to, to get out of home and get away from my parents. I did not really know much about Christianity. Uh, but when I joined the army, um, I got invited to go along to church, which I did out of sheer boredom. Uh, I was expecting a bunch of moralizing geriatrics, uh, but they weren't. It was a lovely uh, Baptist church plant in, uh, in, uh, part of Sydney when I went along to, and, and they were great. And I heard the I heard the message of the gospel, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation in his name. And in uh, in 1994, I prayed to receive Christ in a different place ever since. Okay, and so talk about your, you had a military background, so I'm guessing you didn't start out to be a Christian scholar, or did you? Uh, no, no. Well, um, as a, uh adolescent, my passion was musical theatre. <laughs> uh, but that didn't work out terribly well for me. Uh, so the next thing to do was to uh, join the military. I had to say I couldn't get into college because my grades weren't really uh, all that great. They were rather um, they weren't bad. They were just terribly average. So it was hard to get into a, uh, a university in Australia. We don't have so many liberal arts colleges that you just walk up to and and pay fees to join. Uh, so, so so really joining the military was the uh, the next best option for me 
And there I worked as an infantry soldier. I worked in military intelligence and then finally finished up as a chaplain's assistant. So I had a fairly fully orbed uh, uh, career in the military, which was great. Gave me a great set of skills and personal attributes that put me in good stead for the rest of my uh, working life. Uh, but then I went to seminary and uh, I was thinking about being a military chaplain to begin with, but it became apparent that I actually did have a bit of an academic uh, forte and uh, you know, I was able to get a, to go on to do an honours degree, got a scholarship from a major university to a doctorate and it just kind of, you know, all went on from there. Okay, so I have, I've enjoyed being uh, the fruits of some of your labour being under you as a doctoral student. So I thought what might be helpful too is just to talk through some of the advice that you give to doctoral students. I know you've helped me a ton just thinking about how to read and how to write and how to interact with arguments. So what are some of the big things that you would tell yep. a prospective PhD student and a current PhD student about what it really takes to write a good dissertation? Well, in the same way that you don't go into combat against a grizzly bear stark naked, <laughs> uh, you shouldn't you shouldn't enter into doctoral studies somewhat naked as well. Uh, the best preparation to do uh, is to make sure you've got a lot of the critical skills that you'll need, particularly in languages, whether that's biblical languages or modern languages, that's some of the best preparation uh, that you can do. Uh, in addition to that, I think it's it's important to uh, read widely um, in the area that you're working in. And the, the, other thing, the other thing is, I think it's important to um, Listen to the advice of your doctoral supervisors. Now, there'll be times in your um, process where you may disagree with things, uh, but you always, as long as you trust that your supervisor's got your best interest in heart, it's always a good idea to trust them. Uh, I don't know how many times I've had doctoral students who have made a decision about something. I've tried to persuade them not to do it. Then in the examination, they get absolutely hammered. And then at the end of it, I go, Big smile on my face, saying, <laughs> "I told you so." Um, so yeah, trust your supervisors and uh, listen to their advice. But at, at the end of the day, I mean, it's your name is on the thesis. Uh, you're the one who will get the um, the glory or the shame for what you've written. Uh, so you, you get to make your own decisions. Well, that's a good reminder for me to do exactly what you tell me to do not not to fight the uh, exactly. not to fight the boss. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so talk, you talked a little bit, too, about just uh, coming to faith in a Baptist church. I know you've had somewhat of a denominational journey. Uh, sadly for me, you've left the Baptist faith and joined somebody else. But talk through a little bit about your, your journey through different denominations and how you got from Baptist to Anglican. Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, yeah, well, I came to faith in a, a Baptist church. It was a wonderful Baptist church in uh, Sydney, just, just on the south side of Liverpool. Wonderful place. Um, yeah, that there was. I got very well discipled there by by a young pastor uh, who was just beginning his ministry. Uh, I then moved to Townsville, Northern Australia, where I attended another great Baptist church there. And the genius of the Baptist system is is church of believers and for believers. They tend to be very evangelistically focused, very keen on uh, discipleship. So there's, so there's wonderful things that are true of the Baptist tradition. Uh, when I moved to Scotland. Um, yeah, up, up there, the main, if you're evangelical, the main option is usually to be to be some type of Presbyterian. There's a few different types going around. And eventually, when you spend four years uh, in the Presbyterian tradition, it does rub off you, rub off on you a little bit. And uh, I did start changing my mind on things like uh, baptism, 
um, you know, shifting from a more, I would call, sort of an individualistic focus on church to a more covenantal and ecclesiastical focus. Mm. Um, but at the same time, in both the Baptist and Presbyterian tradition, what I did sense was a lack of Catholicity. They found it hard to make connections to the wider and ancient church. That's because Baptists tend to be very individualistic, uh, both you know, the idea of soul competence, so each soul can interpret the Bible for themselves, or each congregation is autonomous. That does not naturally lend itself to the deep Catholicity. And uh, in some cases, even Presbyterianism as a somewhat protest movement can be defined very much what it's against, mm-hmm. which I think is the downside of Presbyterianism. Um, and you can end up not just being reformed, but you can end up trying to be truly reformed or even, as I would call it, viciously reformed, um, where the purpose of theology comes to define everything you're against. Uh, so coming to Anglicanism was, for me, a natural development because in my mind you get to be reformed and you get to be Catholic at the same time. Or, as my friend John Dixon says, um, evangelical Anglicanism is what the Catholic Church would look like if it embraced the Reformation. Mm. Uh, maybe that's a slightly ambitious way of uh, putting it. I'm sure um, some Catholics and Presbyterians and Baptists might disagree with that. That's gradually why I ended up where I'm at, and that's why I like being uh, Anglican. There's great resources in Anglican spirituality and the prayer book and the, the history of our own divines. Of course, there are also some very big challenges in being Anglican, not the least in the worldwide Anglican church. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're kind of struggling to find out what our basis of being together actually is. Uh, not terribly different to some of the struggles going on in the United Methodist Church in the USA. Yeah, so you know that I've been doing some work on Baptist Catholicity with, with a couple other friends, so if we make a good enough case, does that mean you'll come back? Baptist Catholicity is maybe a little bit like military intelligence um, or Anglican charity. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to edit that out of the show. We'll pretend like that you didn't say that, okay? That's fine. <laughs> All right. Um, well, let's move on. You've got a couple of, of big works that you've been working on, probably the most uh, prominent of which is, is soon enough you'll be releasing a New Testament introduction with N.T. Wright. So you want to talk through a little bit. First of all, let's talk through just sort of how that project came to bear, and then after that we can maybe follow up on sort of some of the distinctives and things that you're trying to do there. So how did it come about? Uh, Yeah, I mean, SPCK just said to me, do you have any ideas for a book? And I said, "Um, no, but you should get someone to work with Tom Wright and take his sort of, you know, life's work and mold it into a single volume of a New Testament introduction. And I said, that's a great idea. Hey, why don't you do it? I'm not too sure whether I'm the guy Tom may want to pick. He may have one of his own, you know, his own people who want to do it. Uh, But they spoke to Tom and Tom was very interested in the idea. Uh, I mentioned it uh, in passing to uh, an American uh, publisher who um, who uh, jumped on it like um, like uh, someone running for, for their lives to get involved in it. And so they were very, Zondervan was very keen to get involved as well. And over the last 10 years, we've been uh, working on this project. I mean, it's hard to believe it's been about 10 years we've been wow. working on it. Uh and we've, you know, we've made two sets of videos. We did, we did like a tour of Israel, Greece, and Rome, making videos to go with the book um, before it was actually finished. Uh, we made like a seminary curriculum to go with it as well. Um, you know, we've got a whole bunch of you know instructor resources coming out with it. I mean, the joke I tell is the only thing we need to bring out now is our own fragrance, <laughs> uh, sepulchre, 
sense of crucifixion. But that book is bigger than Ben-Hur. At one level, it is kind of a condensed summary of the complete works of N.T. Wright put into one volume. Uh, but it's also supplemented with a lot of, you know, uh, extra stuff, largely from myself. Um, while Tom has uh, exhibited many uh, fine thoughts on the Apostle Paul, he hasn't quite said so much on uh, Hebrews or Revelation or First Peter or anything like that. So I've largely filled in the gaps. And the idea is to come up with what we hope is one of the best New Testament introductions, which is on the market. I mean, it is going to be so graphic. It's got so many uh, pictures, charts, and diagrams, so it's very pictorial. You get, you know, some classic stuff by Wright on Jesus, the resurrection, the apostles, the early church. And, uh, we, we, you know, we do a lot of things along the way just to, my, to make it user-friendly, to make it easier for instructors and students to do. So I'm hoping this will be uh, a very good resource for people in the classroom or in churches. So you and you and N.T. Wright don't agree on everything. So how did you handle some of the issues and teachings where you guys might have disagreed on a conclusion? What was what were the ways that you went through that? Well, there was a pretty similar, uh, simple process. You see, there's a chain of command where Tom is at the top, <laughs> and I'm at, I'm at the bottom. End of chain. Uh, no, so generally, I would usually just go with uh, Tom being the senior scholar. I would usually defer to his view on things. There was, there was nothing, you know, there's some things I may have disagreed with, but there was nothing I was, you know, robustly or passionately or zealously against. There might be a few things of chronology I would have done differently. There might have been a few uh, emphasis here on there I would have done a little bit differently, but there was no, there's no seismic differences. Uh, if anything, it's probably more some of Tom's disagreements with me where I write something and then he'll add, you know, a parenthetical remark just to say, you know, well, of course, there is another side to that argument. So how do you think it's going to, it'll differ? I mean, obviously, N.T. Wright's theology, uh, if you're familiar with it, speaks for itself in terms of, of how it's unique and how it's been sort of a trailblazer in New Testament uh, scholarship. But how do you see this one methodologically, theologically fitting in and comparing to some of the other ones that are out there? And where is it unique? Well, I think it's uh, unique in several ways. Um I mean, what, what we do in the in each chapter covering a biblical book, we do basically three things. The first thing we do is a little bit of a teaser. We kind of explain to you why this book really matters, why this book is interesting, what's in this book that should should, should be of your interest. Now, whether that's the Gospel of Mark or Hebrews or Revelation, that's what it's then we kind of engage in all sort of you know, standard critical issues, you know, mm-hmm. authorship, date, provenance. Um, some of those are more interesting in some books than others, but we cover them. Then we offer what I would call uh, is basically a, a miniature commentary on every biblical book. So the good thing is when you buy this book, you're not just getting an intro to the New Testament. You're also getting a short commentary on every book mm. uh, of the New Testament as well. And then at, at the end of each section, we also add some final thoughts as to how this can apply to the average church or to, you know, a person's uh, Christian life and devotion. So I, I think those sort of four sections uh, kind of summarize what we do with the book. You know, we show why it's interesting, go through all the critical issues, short commentary, and how this gets lived out in your own personal faith. And how, how would you compare it theologically to, say, like D.A. Carson and Doug Moose or some of the other ones that are pretty popular out there? Where would you say that, that yours has major differences that would that would uh, separate it from those? Uh 
I don't know in terms of methodological uh, differences. I, I guess we do focus a lot on the New Testament, as, as it says in the title, history, literature, and theology. So we recognize those are the three components that make up what is a New Testament and what is a New Testament theology. So we actually have quite a big section explaining in what sense is the New Testament historical? How does it relate to history? Mm. Uh, how is it literature? I mean, how do you understand literature? And what is theology? How is it different to you know, the study of religion, that type of thing. So we set it up that way. Uh, we also have some uh, pretty good chapters at the end of the book explaining things like canon and textual criticism, and then a whole section about how the New Testament is just generally leaked out in an act of faith in, in mission and discipleship. So I think it's got some some levers in it that might be a little bit different to some other New Testament introductions, whether that's um, Carsten Moo, uh, De Silva, or Mark Allen, Allen Powell. It's definitely got some unique features that you won't find anywhere else. And you said it's about as big as Ben-Hur. How many pages does it come in at? Uh, I think it I think it'll come in around 800 pages. Man, it's not bad. Top of my head. It's not bad. So it's, um, I, I guess it, for a lot of people, they're going to use it in a somewhat ad hoc fashion. So they'll look at the chapter on Romans when they're studying Romans, or they'll do the stuff on Paul when they're looking at Paul. Uh, it is a book you can definitely read in one sitting and, well, I mean, not like in one hour, but like you know, over a period of time. Mm-hmm. And I think you'll come out of, out of it, I mean, I pray, with a real comprehensive grasp of the New Testament. And as we say very much in the preface, you know, we're not, and that's what I probably should have said before, we're not, is that we're not just interested in adding to people's genuine knowledge about the New Testament. We want to shape the way they read the New Testament. Mm. Uh, that's probably the distinctive thing. We want them to understand the New Testament as literature, as history, as theology. So it's not just giving you more knowledge about, you know, where was Paul when he wrote Romans, um, who wrote the book of Revelation, uh, where did Mark get his ideas from. We don't want to just add, we want to change the way people read the New Testament. And I think that's probably one of the best um, uh, the best objectives of the book. And, and, and I think it also sums up a lot of what uh, Tom Wright's been doing in his whole career, too. Yeah, which which we need to find summaries of that eventually, right? So <laughs> might as well find it there. So some of your, um, you have a lot of, of varied and unique scholarly interests. And so that's one of the reasons why I was interested in studying with you and, and why I'm doing the dissertation topic I am, because you, you have interest in systematic theology and New Testament theology and hermeneutics and sort of all over the place. So how did you develop or where did some of that come from as far as your unique interests? And how do you see biblical and systematic theology playing together in the ways that, that you do it yourself in your own work? Yeah, I think the answer is I have wide-ranging interests and a short attention span. <laughs> um, so I kind of get interested in one thing and get bored with it and move on to something else. Um, I'm a big believer in being a generalist. I mean, you can spend your whole life just specializing in loot acts or, you know, Pentateuch or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, but I, I tend to think, you know, you're a better teacher, you're a better professor, you're a better academic if you know a little bit about everything. So as being, as we would say in Australia, being a jack of all trades type of person. So I kind of, you know, cast the net pretty widely in things ranging from Septuagint, uh, textual criticism, apostolic fathers, systematics, biblical theology, uh, and of course, you know, New Testament, New Testament studies. Um, as to how systematic and biblical theology uh, relates, um, 
I think they, they do need to have a, a relationship. Certainly, uh, systematic theology should be based on good biblical theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, those who are Christian uh, will need to have some sort of default systematic theology. Uh, and the reason being, if someone says to you, um, you know, who is Jesus? Uh, what do you say? Do you say, well, Isaiah says this, Paul says that, the Gospel of John says this, pick the one you like and run with that. Uh, no, there comes a point where you've got to say something that sums up the totality of the biblical witness to certain questions, you know, who is Jesus or how do I get saved? So systematic theology is necessary un- and unavoidable. Well, I like how Paul Bart said, Paul Bart said um, exegesis is where we ask, what does the text say? Systematic theology is where we, we, we nominate what we say on the basis of all the text. Mm. That would be a good way of separating the two disciplines, how they've got their dis- dis- discrete uh, areas of discourse, but we definitely need both, and they can work together in synergy. Yeah, that's really helpful. So is that something that, what, what would you do your dissertation on? I, I know this, but I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. Um, I did my dissertation on the historical Jesus and the Gentiles. Okay. And then you did, I know you did a lot of apocryphal literature and stuff early on, right? Well, yeah, I wrote a commentary on one Ezra's, you know, I've sort of dabbled around the canon uh, here and there. Um, I mean, probably by training and by heart, I'm more of a gospel scholar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I'm reformed, I kind of get dragged into Pauline studies uh, all the time. That's where that's where um, Pauline studies is kind of like fight club for people who are reformed. <laughs> um, and uh, again, but because I teach students uh, who are going into Christian mission and ministry, I'm, I'm concerned with the whole Christian worldview and everything about Christian thought and theology. And yeah, I wrote my own um, systematics, uh, evangelical theology, mm-hmm. which I've recently just revised for a uh, second edition, uh, because I wanted to make sure that students were making the gospel the boundary center and integrating point for Christian thought. And how are you in that book, uh, especially as you did your revision and made sure you were clarifying, how would you define the gospel and how would you say that that creates those boundaries you're talking about? Well, the good news is how salvation and the kingdom of God has come in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how we can be saved by returning away from our sins and believing in Christ. Now, where the gospel sits in theology, I think uh, the gospel should be the starting point for theology, and all of theology is ultimately unpacking the gospel. In my mind, uh, theology is, is what I would call gospelized, uh, where, you know, if you magnetize a piece of metal, the whole piece of metal becomes magnetic. If you sterilize a surgical tool, the whole tool becomes sterile. And when you're gospelized, you begin to reflect and absorb the realities of your gospel in your life. So in my mind, the goal of theology is to be gospelized, that the realities that the gospel proclaims and summons you to would be reflected in your life, in your faith, your devotion, uh, your, your very living and everything. So that's why I, I put the gospel um, first and make it paramount. And if you, if you get the gospel right, you get it right early, that will hopefully inoculate you against the uh, deviations from the faith as well. Yeah, and so how did you, what were some things that you felt like you needed to change, or what were some major revisions you made in your second edition of Evangelical Theology where you see yourself uh, clarifying that or even clarifying other things that, that you had said before? Yeah, well, I actually cut out a lot of material. I think I cut out about 50,000 words mm. um, 
from the entire manuscript just because I wanted to make things a little bit more condensed uh, and a bit more concise and easier to read, which I know students always appreciate. <laughs> At the same time, I then went and added about another 60,000 words uh, to particular areas such as the Trinity and a topic near and dear to your heart, Brandon. Mm-hmm. Amen. So uh, I did more on the Trinity. I covered some things as well, like, uh, you know, multi-site churches, ecclesiology. I added a bit more on uh, the, uh, the good people uh, who do kingdom through covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and a bit more on theological method and, and hermeneutics. And, uh, and generally just, you know, adding, you know, some, some really cool stuff that I've learned up along the way. Uh, the other thing I've done in the volume is I've noticed that when I looked at the footnotes, the, the, the footnotes were largely white, male, and Calvinistic. Mm. And uh, I love white Calvinistic males as much as anybody else. Uh, but I wanted to cast the net a little bit wider. So I've added a lot more uh, women theologians I interact with. Uh, you know, people like Catherine Sonderegger, uh, Sarah Coakley, uh, and a whole bunch of others. I've also added a lot more theologians I interact with and mention from the global church. You know, people particularly uh, from Africa, like Matthew Michaels, um, Simon Chan, um, Asian Americans like Amos Young. So I've made a lot more, um, I think a lot more, there's a lot more women in the and also a, a lot more global scholars as well. And I've also tried to, um, you know, look beyond the, the sort of reform tradition. So I've got a little bit more from Wesley, a little bit more from Pentecostal scholars, uh, even 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 dipping into the writings of Jacob Arminius. Mm. It was very interesting. Uh, the two biggest surprises was one, uh, out of all the Wesleys, the one I liked the most was Susanna Wesley, mm. uh, wife of John and Charles. Um, this was no average uh, Methodist housewife. That woman knew her medieval metaphysics. Mm, interesting. Amazing. God, that's very comprehensive. And uh, the other surprise was there was a couple of times where I found myself agreeing with Jacob Arminius over Calvin. Um, I felt I felt a little bit like dirty when I did that. <laughs> so it was a very uh, it's, it's been a very in, for me uh, very enriching uh, process to go through and, and to revise a volume like that and hopefully uh, make a good thing uh, even better. And that's really that's going to be really helpful. I think that when the first one came out, you know, all my friends that were in seminary started using it. And one of the things that we were really complimentary of and appreciative of was one, you did even though it had a had a reformed leaning. It seemed like you weren't always stuck in the reformed categories as some of the other systematics were. You're willing to play with different ideas and challenge some things. And also, it's just really easy to read. You're such a clear writer. Um, that you yeah. you just write smoothly. You always you know you always have your jokes in there, which some people love and some people uh, don't yeah. love. But you've always been uh, really clear and helpful writer. Is that is that something your writing style? Is that something that you worked on over time, or is that just sort of your natural bent that you write the way that you do? Yeah, I mean the thing is, I, I tend to write the way I teach. Um, so uh, I'm usually thinking with a with a with an eye to oral delivery Mm. as how is this going to not just read off the page, but how's it going to sound? I mean, sometimes you add so much detail. It's just something you can only read. You can't really uh, deliver it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I just tend to write the same way um, uh, I speak, which uh, some people find um, um, charming, refreshing, and energetic. Uh, Other people find juvenile and grossly inappropriate. (laughs) Uh, So it, it, uh, 
I think, yeah, any, anyone under the age of 50, I think, will probably get it. People <laughs> over the age of 50 just kind of, well, that doesn't sound particularly grand and austere, but there we are. Well, let's shift a little bit. You've got another book coming out pretty soon uh, called The Trinity Without Hierarchy. So um, I, go, I was privileged to see an early copy of that. Ian Paul's chapter on the Trinity and Revelation was literally my dissertation and literally the chapter I wish I'd written. Uh, but the whole, yeah. the whole book was really good. So talk through a little bit sort of your your uh, hope for that and what you were trying to do with that book. Yeah, I mean, this is a book like, for those who don't know, there's a there's been a big um, debate about the Trinity and subordination and gender relationships. And I, if I remember, I think yesterday I was just listening to a podcast you did with someone, Brandon, on that topic. Yeah, we've talked about it a few times already, so <laughs> why not yeah, another one? Yeah, so, yes, so we'll, we'll do it again. Um so yeah, there was those who are arguing that the the Trinity provides a kind of model or mirror for male female relationships when it comes to you know submission, marriage, that type of a thing. And there was a whole bunch of smack talk being you know thrown around, and some people being accused of Arian of Arianism. Now I was pretty sure from the beginning that guys like Bruce Ware and Wayne Gruden were not Arians. You know they were not saying that Jesus is a lesser being than the Father or anything like that. Um, and I think they were preserved, trying to preserve the distinction within the Godhead between the Son and the Father. So yeah. I was initially a bit sympathetic to them. The qualifications I had uh, is that any language of subordination means you're kind of, you know, flirting with, with Arianism or an Arianism grammar, so it can end badly. And I also did not see the relationship between the Trinity and male-female relationships. So uh, that was my critique. But then I went back and read a bit more of Bruce Ware's book, and, so, and a few others, and they do start tapping the language of uh, like the father having a greater glory or a greater majesty, which is the exact opposite of what the Athanasian Creed says and, and some other theological works from the church fathers. And it, it started to dawn on me, they may, they're definitely not um, Arians, these guys, but they have, in some senses, they have analogies with the uh, semi-Arians of the, of the middle of the fourth century. Um, such as the, uh, the, the the blasphemy of Sermium, which provides its own creed, which is very much in terms of you know emphasizing the economic subordination of the Bible and avoiding ontological eternal generation, which for a time uh, chaps like Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem did. Uh, now, I know Bruce Ware definitely did reject the um, the sort of designation of being a Homoian or being semi-Aryan, and I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt. But there were some elements of the movement that, in my mind, clearly did resemble the sort of semi-Aryan position. And uh, myself and my good um, colleague, Scott Harrow, and Scott Harrow is, is far more of a, a real Trinitarian scholar than I will ever be, uh, we began to think, well, what sort of volume could we write or come up with to do a sort of response to uh, what was going on? And this is particularly... Uh, it goes back to 2016 when this whole thing blew up on the internet uh, over the Trinity and subordination debate. So we came up with our own idea for a book, which was called uh, became called Trinity Without Hierarchy. And we have got a top cast of scholars involved. We've got people like Graham Cole uh, from uh, from uh, from who's that Trinity now, and mm -hmm. Madison Pierce also uh, now Trinity. We've got a uh, you know um, Ian Paul from the UK, as you just said, writing on Revelation. Uh, we've got Stephen Holmes from um, St. Andrews in the UK. Uh, we've got a great cast of scholars all writing about biblical exegesis and theology. I think we've also got from Southern Seminary, I have from memory, Tyler Whitman. Um, 
And so we're kind of dealing with, with the topic of the Trinity. And is there is there a hierarchy within the Trinity? And fundamentally, what does it mean to be evangelical and to be pro-Nicene? What does it mean to be evangelical and hold to the doctrine of God set forth in the uh, in the Nicene confessional standards? And so how do you see some of that playing out? What are some examples in the chapters of where you feel like that was really highlighted well and brought brought to bear what you were looking for? Um, I think my colleague Scott Harrah, I think he gives a, a very uh, robust, albeit very fair, uh, critique of, of Bruce Ware, particularly his methodology and some of the things he does with what is known as uh, Rana's Rule. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very good chapter, I believe, on, uh, from, I'm going from memory now, uh, Hebrews by Madison Pierce that I thought was particularly good. And then you've got Ian Paul on Revelation. We've got a, a lovely um, uh, British scholar, um, uh, uh, a Desla, who writes on um, the Gospel of John, which also I thought was a, a very good contribution as well. Uh, looking at you know the sort of the uh, the language of you know the Father is greater than I that you find in the Gospel of John, and so you know what do you do with that type of thing? Because the Gospel of John also says that the Father and Son are equal, so mm-hmm. how you reconcile mm-hmm. them together? So there's a great number of studies that I think uh, people who are interested in this debate, in the doctrine of God, the Trinity, that type of thing, will uh, get a lot out of. Yeah, and I I wasn't able to contribute that chapter, but Ian Paul did footnote me. Uh, one of my articles in there. So I felt like I, I made my contribution. I made it in the academic world. So I don't know if you added that in there or if Ian did, but I thought it was, I thought it was great that oh, it was that, in there. That's, that's, that's all Ian. I <laughs> try not to uh, interfere too much in the uh, contributors um, arrangement of stuff. So no, that was, uh, that was all Ian's deciding to give you a, give you a Guernsey in the footnote. <laughs> I'll take it. Thank you so much for taking a little time to, to hop on here and you'll be getting a chapter from me soon. So I hope you're ready for that. <laughs> That'd be fantastic, Brandon. Always a pleasure to talk to you.